This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. I'm your host, Bill Ayers, and I'm here as always with Malik Alim, producer, engineer, mix master, and teacher. That was the fierce freedom fighter and generous guitar gorilla Tom Morello getting us started, singing a song of freedom. That's who he is. Tom Morello shows up whenever and wherever people gather together in a fugitive space or an insurgent community in the ongoing and deeply human quest for peace and justice, for freedom. We open each episode with a poem, our common practice and our ritual announcement that seminar is in session. It's a time of reflection, a moment of Zen. Today's poem is a love poem by Evan Boland from her ironically titled collection, Against Love, and appropriate perhaps for the long lockdown we're living through. The poem is called Quarantine. In the worst hour of the worst season of the worst year of a whole people, a man set out from the workhouse with his wife. He was walking. They were both walking north. She was sick with famine fever and could not keep up. He lifted her and put her on his back. He walked like that, west and west and north, until at nightfall, under freezing stars, they arrived. In the morning, they were both found dead, of cold, of hunger, of the toxins of an entire history. But her feet were held against his breastbone, the last heat of his flesh was his last gift to her. Let no love poem ever come to this threshold. There is no place here for the inexact praise of the easy graces and sensuality of the body. There is only time for this merciless inventory, their death together in the winter of 1847, also what they suffered, how they lived, and what there is between a man and a woman and in which darkness it can best be proved. Thank you, Evan Boland. Our second regular feature is a free write, a time to enable startling new winds to blow, shocking us sometimes into new awarenesses. Here you can pause the podcast for just a moment if you like, and write wildly in response to this prompt. If you could bestow on every human being on earth three qualities, not physical traits like a great singing voice, that, although that would be wonderful, not a religious or a political affiliation, but three qualities that would make the world a better place. What would those qualities be? We'll be right back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Let's open today with reports from the front row, pages from one middle schooler's notebook, where we look at the world and at education from the perspective of our dynamic reporter, Light Eilee. She's a writer, an artist, a critical observer, and a mini ethnographer. She's 13 years old and in the seventh grade. Thanks for joining us under the tree, Lady. Thank you for having me. It's always great to be here. Love having you here. Um, let's uh, let's start by. Um, you're still under quarantine. You're still locked down. 
How's school going? It's okay. I wish they cared about us more. How do, how do you mean? Well, I mean, it makes me angry that every time that every time they like send out emails to us, they're like, best of luck, we know this is a really hard time, take time for yourself, and get away from the screens if you can. And we're like, okay, but I would get away from the screen, except I have homework to do. And actually something that made me like confused rather than angry is they send out these surveys every week where it's like, how's the workload? Did you have technical troubles? And we get to see the results of those surveys, and they are terrible. Really? What, in what way? Yeah. The, the results are like, I'm struggling to keep up. I feel really sad and bleak. I, I can spend no time with my family. I do eight to, eight to ten hours of homework every week I, or day, sorry. I, I like, don't know what to do. This is too much. And then they were like, we think it's because y'all are on your phones too much. Oh, my God. So in a sense, it's kind of, it's kind of dis, it's kind of both disrespectful and patronizing, both, isn't it? Yeah, I think they're only doing it to like seem like they care, mm. but I feel like they don't, and I just wish they would listen to us. And no one likes to listen to me because they think I just want less homework. And do you? Want and I less do, of, of course. But also, it's it's like not fair. They don't understand that we are also humans. We also know what's going on, and it stresses us out. So in a way, you're saying it's a performance of compassion without the real thing. That's what I think. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into the homework thing, but I do feel sometimes like they're just trying to maintain their image. Mm. Like we're, we're caring, we're good people. But by the way, spend eight hours of homework and stay off your screen. Yeah. Pretty contradictory. And I, for the first quarter, I took um, a DEI class, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And that's a really, really good idea if they had done it well, but they didn't. We had no, we had no interesting talks. We hmm. talked about like what a stereotypical teenager is like. We, had, we did nothing deep, nothing interesting hmm. because it was fake. They didn't want to actually get into sensitive topics because... They don't think we can handle it. And do you think you can? Of course. I know my classmates better than they know us. We're mm. pretty mature. We know what's going on. We can talk about that kind of thing. Mm. Not around the teachers, so why can't we talk about it in class? They just that's not how they set up the class though. We just talked about really weird, like not important things. So once again, it's almost the performance of caring about diversity without the substance of actually listening to you. Yeah, exactly. We had no like seminars or anything. We just, they had us fill out worksheets about like a stereotypical teenager and like drugs. Mm. I don't know. It was. Well, you know, it makes me want to give you a pitch and then we'll change the subject. And my pitch is, why don't you right now start thinking about becoming a teacher? Okay, I will. I have thought about that. I mean, you'd be first of all, you would be a great teacher because you you're so engaged in so many aspects of the world. But secondly, you have a lot of insights. And and if you can hold on to those and not lose them as you get older, you know, if you can hold on to what it feels like to be 13 and people condescending to you or patronizing you or performing without substance, I think that'd be a, a great strength to bring into the classroom. Okay, that's my pitch. <laughs>
I have considered it because I've had some teachers with aspects that I really want to be able to demonstrate for my own students. And since I was little, the idea of decorating my own classroom has been one of the most appealing things ever. I think the right. main th the main discouraging aspect for me is that I'd probably have to start out as a substitute teacher. And um, the substitute teachers I've had... I don't want to say I don't want to say that I think they don't enjoy their jobs, but I guess that's the only way to put it. Yeah. Um, probably true. It, I've had some really really good substitute teachers, but it's it's very rare, and I I get that it's very hard to be a good substitute teacher. You don't know the students, you don't know what they're like, they don't know you. You have true. basically no authority over them, so it's hard. I had one student. I had one student many many years ago who was a substitute teacher for two years, and she created a little bag of materials that she carried with her whatever classroom she went. And it had tons of art supplies, tons of interesting stories and poetry to read. And she really was a very effective teacher because she didn't try to follow what the lesson plan was that the classroom teacher had left. She decided to do art and writing and, you know, and poetry. I, I think that's one way to approach that dilemma. That, that, that does sound really smart. Also, when we saw that we had a sub, we would also be like, that's, you know, disappointing. But also there was a little bit of a appeal to having a sub. And it's pretty easy to guess why. It's because you don't do any actual things with a sub. They give you a packet of work that you can do. It's busy work and you don't actually have lessons. You just do review work. So it's, it's, it's sometimes fun to have a sub, and sometimes you watch movies, which that's very popular. Of course. Did you ever read the book Stuart Little by E.B. White? Yes, I did. Do you remember that Stuart is on a road trip looking for Margalow? And at one point he drives into a town where he finds a man crying on the curb. And he pulls up in his little tiny car and he says, what's the matter? And he says, I'm superintendent of schools. And he says, well, that's bad, but it's nothing to cry about. And it turns out, yeah, that's great. And then it turns out that Miss Gunderson is sick and he needs a sub. So Stuart volunteers to be the sub. And, yeah, and I do remember that chapter vaguely. I read it when I was little, but I do remember the chapter where he teaches the classroom. You have to get, you have to reread it if you decide to become a teacher because Stuart goes into the class. He's a tiny little mouse, so he jumps on the bell to get their attention. Everyone's very excited, and they say, a mouse, a mouse. They're also excited because Miss Gunderson isn't going to be there. And then he <laughs> says to the kids, um, what, what do you do first? And they say, spelling. And he says, spelling? Don't you have a dictionary? And they say, of course. And he said, well, let's not do spelling. And he goes through a whole curriculum that way. And he says, let's do what's really important. And uh, he says to the kids, what, what's important? And one girl says, the way a baby smells after a bath. Exactly. Let's talk about that. It's very funny. It's <laughs> I would love to have Stuart Little as my sub. Exactly. He's a, a neatly dressed little mouse. But speaking of Stuart Little and E.B. White, Let's talk a bit about uh, reading, because I know you're a voracious reader. You're a very um, engaged reader. But since we're all on lockdown way longer than we anticipated, I was wondering if you could give some kind of recommendations for readings for 10-year-olds or 11-year-olds or middle schoolers. You have any recommendations? Yes, of course. Um, I have recommendations for different age groups, so 10 to 11, like 5th or 6th grade. Um, 
my favorite book in fifth grade was called Genonia by Kevin Hankies. Um, I've always mm. loved his... I don't know that. You don't know it? I don't know that book. Mm. I've always loved his work. He writes picture books and um, chapter books. And it's about this girl who... They, she Every year for, like, around her birthday, during her birthday, but not, like, for her birthday, as a vacation, her family goes to this kind of beach. Like, they stay on this beach with this group of people that she's known since she was really little. And this year is her 10th birthday, which she thinks is really important because it's double digits. And she really, really wants to find a Genonia, which is a, a mm. kind of very, very rare seashell. And she really wants to find one for her 10th birthday because she thinks that is what will make it perfect. So the story nice. is about her, her, it's about her trip and it's really touching and beautiful. And she, her, in, her like insights and thoughts on the world are so interesting and like, del and like pointed. It's amazing. Oh, great. So that's a good recommendation. Junonia by? Kevin Hank. I, I've never known if it was Hankies or Hanks. I think it's Hankies. Okay. I don't know. Um, okay. And what's another? Um, if, if for like kids who want to do more like tough reading, um, Hatchet by Gary Paulson is always a very good choice. Um, it's it's harrowing. I'll tell you that. It's a it's mm. a novel about this I think fourteen or fifteen year old boy named Brian who gets stranded on who gets into a plane wreck because mm. the captain has a heart attack while they're flying and he gets stranded on this in this wilderness i don't think it's an island but he gets stranded in this wilderness for like 54 days and it the story is about him surviving it's wow crazy and really scary at times um but it's amazing the writing is really good and you feel connected to the character you want him to make it and what age group is that for um i would say for um 11 to 12 probably okay okay great what's another um pie by sarah weeks that's probably for 10 to 11 um that's kind of a mystery that's kind of a mystery about um this girl who tries to solve the mystery after uh, tries to solve the mystery of her her aunt's her aunt Polly's um, passing, and she she goes on she like goes on this um, I don't know how to explain it. Her aunt Polly owned a pie shop, one of the best. Her pies were so good; they're so popular, and no one knows the recipe. So. Um, so Alice, the girl, meets this boy her age named um, Charlie, and they try to solve the mystery of where of, she must have left the pie recipe somewhere, right? So they they try to find it, and it's amazing. It's really well written, and the way she describes and it has pie recipes included, and the way the author describes pies is amazing. So that sounds wonderful. You can eat your way through the whole reading. That sounds terrific. Yes. Um, and, and a couple more. Um, for 12 to 14, I definitely recommend, um, uh, the Twilight series, um, by Stephanie Meyer. Um, it's, I wouldn't describe it as a love story, but I guess 
like definition wise that's what it is it's kind of a supernatural story a saga about this um 18 year old girl bella and she meets this vampire um who's like i don't know 108 or something but he's 17 in human years um named edward cullen and the story is it's kind of love triangle mixed with i don't know uh drama fighting vampires werewolves it's amazing and coming of age is it a coming of age story is it i don't i wouldn't up? say that i don't think she really grows up in that in those books i it's more like it's basically a lot it's basically a story a love triangle story that's pretty much Perfect. the plot that everyone really gets from it it's amazing Perfect. though and it's very satisfying i will also say and we have time for one more. Do you have one more book uh, up your sleeve? Yeah. Um, for another one for 12 to 14 is, um, it's called Love and Gelato. Um, it's about this, by Jenna Evans Welch. It's about this girl, this girl who her mom passes away. So she moves to Florence, Italy to live with her mom's okay i guess this is weird but to live with her mom's ex-boyfriend because that's basically the only option she has and Mm. she finds her mom's journal her mom's diary and she meets this boy her age named lorenzo and they kind of it's kind of like pie but with a different kind of background they go on this kind of adventure around italy to figure out what her mom's life was like and how and what happened with her boyfriend because clearly he's he was still in love with her um Mm. so it's kind of a love story mystery family type of thing and it's it's amazing that's wonderful you know i wish you would keep uh collecting these ideas because we have a segment in the podcast called my book of books the things I'm reading or the things I want to put on my list in order to read in the future. And I'd like to come back to this and have you give us some more titles as you understand. Um, and, and you can become kind of a book critic for us. And that would be, that'd be a real service. That would be but amazing. I think that's all. I'd love that. So I think that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much, Lady, for joining us under the tree. And I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate what Lighty just gave us, which is kind of her book of books. And I encouraged her to keep going and keep curating that book of books. And, and hopefully we'll get back to her and, and have her add in every now and then. I wanted to add one title to, to uh, my own book of books, which I recommend to you. It's called What's So Great About Art Anyway by Rachel Branham, B-R-A-N-H-A-M. What's so great about art anyway is the name of the book, and that's a great question. And while there are no easier, straightforward answers, the provocative, often surprising reflections in this delightful graphic novel will challenge teachers and prospective educators to think more deeply about their practice, the craft, the science, and yes, the art of teaching. The art is the heart of the matter. Teaching art and arts education to be sure, but mostly teaching as an art 
and specifically what the arts can tell all of us finally about teaching free people. The qualities that are stimulated and unleashed in any serious encounter with the arts, curiosity, imagination, critical investigation, initiative, problem solving, improvisation, courage, these are in fact the arts of liberty, the very values and conditions necessary for full participation in a democratic society. Artful teaching goes deep and taps the common core. It involves experimentation, observation and analysis, practice and reflection, and surprise, indeed, this discovery and construction of a self and a world. Teaching at its best urges voyages. Rachel Branham carefully weaves together a sturdy graphic novel, The Log of an Intellectual Odyssey, and the yummy memoir of a young person making her wobbly way toward teaching in a single comic book. It's part detailed and practical manual, part invitation to dive into the vortex and paddle alongside her toward enlightenment and liberation. It's also something of a manifesto, a declaration of independence, a set of demands to tack onto the heavy oak doors of power, and a program to mobilize the troops, students, parents, teachers, community folks, in order to storm the heavens and demand the schools we deserve, mm -hmm. schools that teach art and schools that teach artfully. We insist that teaching be built on our basic human need to build and create, to perform and construct, to speak up and act out. Rachel Branham shows us that art matters. It's now time for our guest speaker series, what we call Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, pronounced AH, where we talk to folks who can help us think more deeply and more clearly about this political moment, about freedom and justice, and what is to be done. We look at the circumstances of our lives, release our radical imaginations, and ask not just what's going on, but also how our lives might be otherwise. We're delighted to be joined by someone who embodies the entire range, activist, author, and artist. Christiana Colon is a poet, a playwright, an actor, an educator, co-director of the Let Us Breathe Collective, creator of hashtag Black Sex Matters, and an alum of the Goodman Theater's Playwrights Unit. She's a resident playwright at Chicago Dramatists and one half of the brother-sister hip-hop duo, April Fools. I could go on and on, but I'll stop there and welcome you to have a seat here under the tree. Welcome, Christiana. Thanks so much, Bill. It's great to connect with you. I'm so glad you're here and I appreciate you so much. I, as I said, I could have gone on and on uh, with your, with your uh, accomplishments and your prizes and your books, but I really wanted to jump into it. So first, I guess I better say uh, we're all locked down these days. How are you doing? How are you managing? Um, you know, I think I'm finding a groove. Are you? We definitely have um, reverted back to our springtime, uh, you know, sort of rigid protocols around really not getting together with people, even outdoors, even in mass settings, you know, pretty much only interacting with folks at the grocery store. Yeah, I've, I've gotten more strict even than it was in the spring. And it's disappointing. It's disheartening. But I think we have to do it another three or four months, really, really serious lockdown. Maybe we can get through this. But you, of course, have a two-year-old at home. So what's that like for, for, the, for the baby? Yeah, he's almost two. And it's funny, right when we were starting to go into lockdown in March, um, we were just starting to like 
look at daycares and and think about getting some more regular childcare because uh, right. we really needed it. Um, and of course, that put a halt to all of that. So uh, we spent a lot of the early lockdown just, you know, kind of in a in a little bubble, uh, exactly. bouncing around, um, which is fun. You know, he's really delightful. His vocabulary is expanding just exponentially by the day. Right. Um, but now we have a, a homeschool situation that is really great. Um, my godmother comes three days a week and right. uh, does some some homeschooling with Ori and uh, his big sister Yari uh, during the times that she's with us. And so that has been really great for That's everybody. Terrific. That's yeah. terrific. But but it sounds like you're finding places to find joy, even in a dismal, dark kind of space, right? I mean, there's joy there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I consider myself extremely blessed. Like all my family has been healthy. I'm healthy and I'm employed. And like that is, right. that is everything right now. So, That's right. Um, you know, so many people have lost people, you know, the loss is just unfathomable right now. So the fact that all of my people are um, healthy is uh, a huge treasure. Absolutely. I hear you. Well, let's talk, let's start, let's jump in with your current work. I know you've got a, um, uh, an astonishing piece that I've actually heard read. Um, I heard a reading of it early on. I'm sure it's changed, but it's called Suspension. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that piece and where you are on it. Yeah, I am currently in post-production for uh, a teaser trailer proof of concept. Um, I'm a part of Open TV's 2020 cohort of screenwriting fellows. Um, and as a part of the fellowship, the four of us are each developing an original series. Uh, my series is an adaptation of the play, Suspension. And um, as a part of the fellowship, we're each developing a visual component to our pitch. So um, I actually had the wild experience of shooting during the pandemic um, and, you know, figuring out how to have a, a COVID safe film set um, to create this proof of concept. And so um, I'm writing the pilot uh, adaptation of the stage play right now. Wow. And I heard, as I said, I heard a reading, but maybe tell folks what suspension, what it's based in, what, what your thinking is, what you're doing with this piece. Yeah, Suspension is an Afrofuturist dystopian high school rebellion story um, where five teens on the power cheer team rise up to oppose their high school's hyper-militarized campus security force. Um, so it imagines a world where uh, through a casual update to the school's mobile app, the parents have kind of unwittingly clicked agree, not realizing that they're agreeing to uh, basically allow the school to take in-school suspension, literally suspending their students upside down from the ceiling um, as a, a way to bring them back into compliance. Um, and it was born out of, um, you know, Barbara's uh, Geographies of Justice Conference um, and the part of the series that focused on the intersections between education and policing. Um, and, you know, we did some, some reading and some discussion around that. Um, and Barbara asked me to respond creatively. And the image that just, you know, came into my mind as I was meditating on some of the reading materials was just that of a black girl uh, suspended, uh, mm -hmm. literally suspended upside down. And, you know, and then I started building what the world would be in order for that to be possible 
possible. And, you know, the scary thing is, you know, it is dystopian, but it's not that far removed from uh, where we are now. Like, of course, children are not in school, but, you know, as a teaching artist, I have been in Chicago public schools for um, a little over a decade and a half. And, um, you know, I'm a product of Chicago public schools. When I was in high school, I, I didn't have police officers greeting me at the front desk. Um, you know, I went to Whitney Young. We had metal detectors, but they were never on. Like, we just walked around them. Um, and so now as a teaching artist going into high schools um, to do workshops on playwriting or spoken word, uh, I'm noticing that there's always CPD in the schools. Um, you know, some schools have even transformed rooms of their schools into holding cells. Um, and so really bringing that carceral sensibility into um, a learning environment, I think, is to everything that learning is supposed to be. Um, and so suspension, the series, uh, it tends to be a critique on that, um, you know, with a, a sci-fi lens, with uh, the lens of Black girlhood and, and Black ingenuity, how the cultural production of Black girls is at once commodified and appropriated and criminalized um, and, and hyper-policed. Um, and so, you know, it is vibrant. The, the proof of concept that we're developing is a mixture of animation and live action. So mm. thinking about it in the, in the, you know, storytelling aesthetics of, you know, very high concept animation, like we see with Amazon's Undone right now, sort of taking um, these concepts of mental health and like heightened states of consciousness and, and bringing um, an animated uh, aesthetic to it. So that's what I'm working on right now. Wow. What well, was so haunting to me when I heard it read, there were two things. One was the kind of obvious and yet and yet really creative idea of taking the word suspension and using its other meaning. So, you know, suspension is something that everyone in high school knows about, but you actually suspended these kids from the ceiling. And it was, uh, it was, but what was haunting was how familiar it was. So on the one hand, it's this authoritarian, fascistic, um, autocratic school. But on the other hand, it, there's so many elements of it felt real. I mean, that's really, really what worked for me. I was haunted by it. Yeah, it is haunted. In the um, expanded version, there's a, another element called panoptica, where the school's PA system has gotten an upgrade and it now functions as um, an artificial intelligence bot a la Siri or Alexa. So if you can imagine being in the hallways and, you know, the, the ceiling is literally listening to you, you know, if you're fighting with your friends and you swear you can be automatically issued a disciplinary infraction. Um, so really taking a lot of the elements of hyper surveillance um, and, you know, policing in the schools that we're experiencing already and just sort of imagining the haunting extremes to which we might arrive if we don't change course. Absolutely. Panoptica. That's the element. Panopt I love it. Um, I, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Foucault and Discipline and Punish. And the Panopticon figures uh, centrally to that work. Um, very, very interesting. I want you to explain to folks a bit about Afrofuturism, which is a term people hear, but I don't think they know uh, so much what it is. So, so this is something you, you're working with. Um, uh, you know, you think of Butler and some of her work and, as kind of a pioneer of this, but, but how, do you th how does Afrofuturism um, why is that an important vehicle for you? Yeah, absolutely. Afrofuturism, I think, has been made mainstream by Black Panther. Um, you know, I think that is kind of when 
Um, it became, you know, part of dominant cultural lexicon. Um, as I understand it, you know, Afrofuturism is uh, sci-fi featuring Black people, alternate speculative realities uh, with Black people at the center, at the helm. Um, and really, you know, part of its um, resist, its mode, it, it, Afrofuturism as a mode of resistance um, is imagining that there is a future with Black people in it, first mm. and foremost, um, mm. and not just, you know, alive and thriving, um, but really, you know, proliferating new technologies, um, and not necessarily technologies as we understand it in the Western corporate construct, um, but technologies that draw on uh, mysticism, technologies that draw on the earth and the natural world. Um, so that is how I understand Afrofuturism. And for me, um, you know, imagining alternate realities is the work of m movement and is the work of, um, you know, liberation and social justice. We have to be able to imagine um, a more just world in order to figure out how we can possibly design it. Um, and so creating alternate realities um, and, you know, catalyzing people into collective imagination uh, where black and brown people uh, are sort of at the center of their own stories is, is important to my work. What's, what's your greatest hope for suspension in terms of a catalyst? What do you want it to catalyze? I want suspension to radically shift public discourse around how we envision spaces of learning. Mm. Um, I think what, what that conference did for me um, was really like caused me to challenge some of my internalized elitism when it comes to academic achievement and like what it means to be intelligent. Like I was always a kid that was in a gifted program. School always came really easily to me. And it really took, um, you know, so, some provocation for me to understand education as an offshoot of, of carceral systems and, mm. you know, a, a mode by which we enforce conformity uh, so that capitalism can, you know, self-proliferate. Um, and, you know, understanding education in those terms has really, I think, maybe question, like, what, what is the function of the school as we mm. currently envision it? Um, and if we're imagining liberation, like, how do we imagine that in the way we structure education as a society? Yeah, I hear a distinction in what you're saying between education and schooling. And, and the way you talk about education, it sounds like enlightenment, liberation, imagination, creativity. Schooling is really about suspension. It's about discipline and punishment and conformity and so on. That's the distinction I hear in the, in the things you were just saying. Yeah, and, and I even use the word education tentatively because I think what I am really wanting to mean is learning. And, you know, as a new parent watching my child grow, um, you see that they don't really need a whole lot in order to be learning, right? Like learning is kind of the natural state of being. Um, and I think what we do as um, adults and what we do as a culture is we interrupt the, the child's natural ability to learn. And so, you know, 
understanding and appreciating uh, different aptitudes and understanding that academic achievement is one aptitude that like has very little, um, you know, <laughs> value in terms of like what, you know, how do you feed yourself with your knowledge of, you know, memorized facts or trigonometry or whatever. Um, you know, I, I just, I am interested in a society where learning um, is really just embedded into our existence um, and is not a profit engine and is not, you know, a way to um, create a labor force. You know, I love it that you turn to your own son because, you know, it's true. You watch a six-month-old, you watch a one-year-old or a two-year-old, everything is the site of learning. There's no, he, he, he's not anybody's target of instruction. He's just taking the world in and he's taking it in with all five senses. And so he's going full speed and, and there's no lesson plans. There's no, you know, you don't have to go that way. He's absorbing life. And then when you turn and say, I, I want education to be just part of living, I think they're synonymous. Living and learning are the same. If you're learning, you have to be alive. If you're alive, you're learning. Not always the things we wish we would learn. Right. It's a really, really interesting piece that you would love by the great uh, philosopher of education, John Dewey. He wrote a tiny little op-ed in the New York Times called Utopian Schools. And it was in 1934 or something. But the trope is, he said, I traveled to Utopia on a spaceship. And um, when I arrived, I wanted to see the schools. And the most utopian thing about utopian schools is there are no schools. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, the people, people apprentice themselves to life and they're, they work and they go to workshops and they, uh, they, they follow their interests, they follow their passions. And you don't need schools if you actually integrate growth with life and you believe in human growth. I, I just thought you, the way you put it was just particularly brought John Dewey to mind. Um, yeah, I'm going to definitely have to check that out. Um, you know, you've said some really interesting things. Um, you just said, you know, you can't achieve alternatives to the violent system we live in if, if you can't imagine it. So imagination plays a huge role in your life, in your work, but also in your vision of schools. Say a bit more about that. I think that our ability to trust what we feel and perceive um, is like key to us staying connected to our imagination. And I think so much about our education system um, and like our education system as an offshoot of carceral systems really relies on us being disconnected from what we actually feel and experience. Um, and, and so much of how we go about educating children is about detaching them from their <laughs> own perceptions, from trusting their intuition, from trusting what they feel. Um, and I think that is like the first step in priming someone to be a worker in, um, you know, sort of a, a capitalist system is like you have to <laughs> be able to say like, oh, this doesn't feel good, but I'm gonna do it anyway. And that mm -hmm. takes years and years of, of um, training that is like stripping away some of your most innate sensibilities. Um, and so, you know, what I 
would love for learning to be um, is inside of a world, inside of a society where you can be deeply connected to what feels good um, mm -hmm. and pursue that, you know, and still be able to feed yourself and access shelter um, mm -hmm. and, and protection uh, for yourself and your family. So, um, you know, th that's kind of like the, you know, the big view philosophical answer to that question but you know yeah um, but I, you know, but like I, what you described of like being able to just pursue the things that interest you um and that be you know functional enough in society that like you can live and 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 eat and be okay yeah you think about it i mean kids go off to school at the age of five or six and they know how to walk they know how to talk they know how to eat they know how to do all these things and nobody exactly taught them they picked it up because they were growing and learning and life and learning are the same but but what you said struck me about not trusting yourself but learning one of the first lessons of school is there's a higher authority that knows better than you do um what you're worth and what your value is and so on and so on i mean think about like bathroom lines <laughs> like when i go into schools now and i see like tape on the floor this is like this is the boys line this is the girls line we're gonna walk in a single file we're all gonna relieve ourselves at the same time and then we're gonna come back it it's like you really want to control even the most intimate biological impulses of tiny humans um as as a, a method of like you know and, and then like you ask to go to the bathroom like there have been so many horror stories of like teachers not letting kids go to the bathroom and and that resulting in like deep humiliation um and you know it's just like those simple things that just detach you from your humanity that detach you um from being you know connected with your feelings your intuition mm -hmm. your sense of self um your autonomy over your body um and i think that's just like one tiny example of what schools do mm -hmm. um but you know extrapolate that a hundredfold for like all of the minutes of the day um yeah. that every part of how you are um moving through space um is being controlled and policed yeah it's, embl it's emblematic that bathroom story is absolutely emblematic because yeah, you multiply that in every area and you say, wow, um, I cannot trust myself. I can't trust myself to know when I have to go to the bathroom or whether I'm a worthwhile person or whether I have an intelligence or on and on and on. And uh, your message is quite the opposite. You have a right to be here. I mean, that's what you're, I imagine, I would love to have you as my teaching artist because I imagine <laughs> one, of your, one of your underlying lessons is you have a right to be here. You're a human being worthy of respect. I, I think you have a mind and a heart and a spirit that I'm going to take into account. I mean, it sounds to me that those are your foundational ideas, whatever else you're teaching. Yeah, that there is genius that is inherent to each individual child. And, you know, it is our job to nurture and steward that genius and not, um, you know, shave away at it for the ends of, you know, capitalist production. Mm -hmm. You know, you've written that um, that artists are the vanguard of revolution and it's their social duty of creatives to envision, imagine, rehearse, design and embody a liberated future. Maybe you'd say a word about that. That's a beautiful statement. 
Yeah, it's definitely very much inspired by uh, Tony Cade Bambara's quote um, that, you know, it is the job of the artist to make the revolution irresistible. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, plays, why I'm a playwright um, is plays are spells. You know, you have a bunch of people saying words um, that are an incantation moving through space uh, in a ritualized way and creating a reality. And then you have, you know, around that another concentric circle of folks who are collectively imagining inside of that reality. And I think that people imagining things at the same time is, is the magic ingredient for how you make matter. Um, you know, like I, I am, I'm witchy in that way that like, you know, I think that we're constantly casting spells um, and, and shaping our reality with the spells that we cast. For example, money. Money only has value because we have collectively imagined a value for it. There's no inherent value in the piece of paper or cotton and dye, whatever it is that is the US dollar. Most of the time, it's just a number on a digital screen that like, you know, the computer could arbitrarily change at any time. But because of our collective trust and our collective imagination, the system has value and it controls our lives. And if we can use our big magical brains <laughs> to all focus on one thing like money and makes reality out of something that is not real, imagine what we could do with the power of that collective imagination if we focused it somewhere else. Um, and so that for me is really the power of um, the artist uh, as a, a cultural worker and as um, the forward guard of liberation. And you also say liberation is a curatorial act a creative act that revolution is inherently speculative. Say, say more about that. Yeah, it's just what I was saying earlier about envisioning something different. Like I had been on the streets in Ferguson, on the streets in Chicago for probably about four months um, in 2014 before abolition. <laughs> came into my mind, you know, mm -hmm. like I've been marching and marching and marching with folks in Ferguson and the chant indict, convict, send those killer cops to jail. The whole damn system is guilty as hell. It's really catchy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and someone pulled me to the side because I was always on a megaphone. Someone pulled me to the side and was like, yeah, um, we don't really use that chant anymore. And I was like, oh, wait, what? And they're like, well, yeah, you know, like we're not sending the killer cops to jail. Like we are fighting for a world where there are no jails. And it was like, oh, boom, like, of course, you know, like my, my sensibility was already radical, but no one had framed it to me in that way that like, oh, it's not just about a few bad cops. We want to actually radically reimagine society such that it doesn't include jails, right? Um, and that, you know, cognitive shift was everything for me. It made me realize that like, oh, I've been calling the cops when my lived experience is that the cops never helped me. Like, why do I think that I should call the cops? Oh, because I have been conditioned inside mm -hmm. of um, a system that says that cops are the authority and cops are who you call, you know, when, when you need some help, right? And I've watched 11 seasons of Law and Order SVU where I've just been like ingesting mindlessly this 
propaganda that there's some person on the other end of the line that really gives a damn if I've been sexually assaulted. Like, it's not real. It's, it's imaginary. Um, and so when I say that, um, you know, liberation is speculative, it is that, that, that moment of provocation, that, that moment of a cognitive shift of tapping on the shoulder and, and reminding you of what your lived experience is and like, how are you going to actually perceive the world around you through the lens of your lived experience separate from what you've been conditioned and socialized inside of. Um, and I think that's the artist's job. I think that that, you know, when I say it's a curatorial act, it is designing the things, right? Like when we talk about defunding the police, <laughs> um, it's not just like, oh, we're gonna, you know, punish the police by taking money away from them. It's no, we want to design and curate a different type of world. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we're going to do that by reallocating the budget in this way, in a way that actually reflects the type of world that we want to live in. Um, and so that, that, is, that is what I mean um, by, <laughs> I think that, you know, liberation is, is curatorial um, and speculative in nature. And of course, the arts, your involvement with the arts can be that provocation. I mean, you talked about being in Ferguson and somebody saying something in your ear, but but a play or a poem or a novel uh, can be that provocation for people, right? Yeah, absolutely. I have a play called Good Friday. Um, over my shoulder, you see uh, the poster for The Darkest Pit, and that yes. was Good Friday before I renamed it and rewrote it. Um, and it takes place in a college classroom as a school shooting is unfolding. Mm. Um, it's, um, it's pretty harrowing. Um, it deals with issues of sexual assault. Um, and it is, you know, curiously my, my most produced play. It's the play of mine that is in the highest demand. Mm. Um, and it, it was the only play that I have produced in 2020. So right before everything shut down, I had the Texas premiere of Good Friday in Austin, Texas. And on opening night um, afterwards, the director came up to me and she was like, this woman just told me that she quit her job. Like she said, she texted her boss from right here in the theater um, that she couldn't do it anymore. And what her job was is she worked for a lawyer as an investigator who like digs up dirt on women who come forward with um, allegations of sexual assault. And so, you know, if that, you know, one moment is an example of the type of provocation that my work is able to make, um, you know, then I'm, I'm grateful for every, opportunity like that to, you know, change someone's mind and, and the ripple effect that it might have. Wow. I mean, uh, one reaction like that could sustain you for years. I mean, right. I mean, because because you don't know how you're impacting people. You it's just like being a teacher. You throw the provocations out there. You don't know where they're going to land. People come back to you 10 years later and said that made a difference. Right. I mean, that's yeah. really exciting. You, you know, as a writer, you've written some pretty amazing plays. You're also a poet. And maybe you'd say a word about, uh, in your writing life, um, how you see the difference between being writing poetry, writing fiction, writing nonfiction, writing plays. Yeah, I think since I've started writing plays, um, I'm writing a lot less poems because the poems I write are inside of my plays. <laughs> mm, there you go. Yeah, I mean, you know, with the example of suspension and so, sort of that initial image of, you know, taking the language of suspension as we understand it in an academic context and taking it literally and seeing the image of a black girl suspended, that is the brain of a poet. 
um, and that is kind of the space from which all of my dramatic work springs, um, you know, from that space of metaphor, um, from that space of, you know, this thing is, is like this other thing that you might not have considered. Um, and so I, I find myself, you know, since I discovered um, <laughs> writing for the stage. Um, it's been harder for me to just sit down and write poems in my own voice. Um, and so when I get asked to perform, I'm almost always doing a medley of um, excerpts from plays of mine um, in, in the voices of different characters. You know, you use the word describing yourself. You said, I'm a little witchy, which is a word I've never heard. Could you tell me a little bit more about what you mean when you say you're a little witchy? Yeah, you know, I <laughs> I think I've always had the sense that I could bend reality to my will. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, I, I also am like a, a kid that grew up in the 90s when the craft was like really popular <laughs> and like all these witchy movies. Um, and, you know, me and my friends always sort of considered ourselves various forms of covens. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I think that, um, I think that art in many forms um, are, are spells, um, you know, that repetition, um, you know, that the vibration of the words that we put out into the world um, shape the world. Um, and I think that that is sort of the foundational to um, my, my witchy sensibility. Um, you know, also having a natural birth and a home birth, I got very familiar with all different kinds of herbs um, and uses of different uh, herbs and things from the earth. And so I think that that combination of um, believing in the power of word and incantation and sound to shape and create matter um, and a connection to the earth and uh, the gifts that it gives us and the healing and transformative properties um, of the gifts that the earth gives us um, kind of makes up my, my witchy sensibility. Wow, I, I absolutely love it. Um, I, I need to ask you one more thing, which is how, how can people who are listening to this be in touch with your work? How can they find your work and how can they uh, find you? How would people go about that? Um, yeah, you can uh, definitely connect with the Let Us Breathe Collective at lettusbreathecollective.com, lettusbreathe773 on Instagram. Um, I am on a social media fast, but you can <laughs> find me on Instagram at christiana underscore af. Um, and I, I will be back in that space when I feel mentally strong enough to be back in that space. But in these pandemic times um, and election times and, you know, my creative incubation times, I have needed to step away from social media. Um, but yeah, Instagram is probably the easiest way to co connect with me. Um, you can keep your eyes on ChristianaRayCologne.com. More content coming there soon. And, and let's spell it though. Christiana is K-R-I. Yes, K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-A, Ray, R-A-E, colon, C-O-L-O-N, dot com. You know, it's been such a treat for me to be with you for this, uh, this bit of time. And I, I just am so grateful for your work and for all that you've accomplished. And 
Thank you for spending some witchy time with me because it really meant a lot to me. I appreciate it, Christiana. It is my pleasure, Bill. Such a joy to reconnect with you, and I hope we get to do more of it again soon. Let's be in touch and love to your family. Thank you. Before we leave today, I have a homework assignment, and it flows directly from the free write, where I asked you to think of three qualities you would bestow on all human beings if you had the power. What I want you to do now is look at that list of three qualities, look at why you put those particular things on the list, and begin to think of them as your values, your basic values. And now what I'd like you to do as homework is look at your workplace, look at your community, look at your home, your living room, the people you're with, your beloved community, and ask yourself, are these three qualities, are these values being enacted, performed, displayed, lived into, and in what ways? Thanks to friends and comrades from the brilliant podcast Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, producers and mentors, and to Malika Lean, valued and irreplaceable comrade in arms. Our music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.